Good morning, Vietnam. It's the Slavic Connection, and it's from Austin all the way to Moscow. <laughs> this is your host, Matt. Today I talked with Kirill Vramov, who's a postdoc fellow at the Intelligent Studies Project, a co-initiative of the Strauss Center and the Clements Center. We talked about disinformation campaigns and the history of them, Russian acceptance of conspiracy theories, among other talks. So I think you guys will have a lot of fun listening to this episode. Listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Kirill, welcome. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure being with you today. So, Kirill, you are a, as it's called, I think, a post currently a postdoctoral fellow with the Intelligence Studies Project. Uh, at the LBJ School, and I think it's also affiliated with the Strauss Center. Is that um, is that all correct? That's correct. Uh, actually, I'm a I'm an assistant professor of political science. Uh, I'm political scientist by training, and currently I'm a postdoctoral uh, fellow at ISP, the Intelligence Studies Project, which is a unique project actually, uh, and it works uh, in um, close um, cooperation with Clements uh, right. and Strauss Centers at uh, LBJ School. Of public uh-huh. affairs. And so how did you kind of get into that arrangement, stumble into that arrangement and kind of what is what is your main role uh, in the ISP? Um, well, uh, it, it's a good question uh, in a sense that um, the way I um, um, ended up working with uh, currently with uh, you know, ISP is actually a logical progression uh, from the research interests uh, I have, and those are sustained interests for quite quite some time by now. Um, and it all started about four, approximately four years ago when I came for the first time at the University of Texas and became part of the Center for Russian, Eastern European, and uh, Eurasian Studies as a Fulbright Research Visiting Scholar working on a specific project, which uh, I believe the title was In Conspiracy We Trust, uh, which was dedicated to weaponization of conspiracy theories. Uh, and you would say, well, well, how from there you uh, you know have gone uh, to uh, look at intelligence studies? Uh, well, the connection is quite logical uh, due, to the, due to the fact that back four years ago, probably um, a handful of scholars and practitioners were paying particular attention of how information could be weaponized and used as what we call cognitive munitions. Uh, And it was prior to 2016, which drew attention specifically here in the U.S. uh, about the topics of Russian interference. Uh, However, in Europe, we have been paying, and specifically Eastern Europe, um, there were early indications and I guess we're a bit hypersensitive uh, to those type of interferences due to long tradition of uh, operations that have been conducted, what we call influence operations, uh, which have um, uh, multiple uh, features. Uh, and uh, going back to your original question, it was very logical for me to continue to look of the applications of those uh, influence operations. So currently what my um, uh, part uh, or per- part of my job uh, at ISP uh, when it pertains to research topics is actually uh, focused on two very specific areas. One of uh, the areas obviously is weaponization of information and uh, its application within the larger context of what we call um, I hate to use the word hybrid so we'll avoid that because it just became a cliche but the regular warfare and how this is a part of the instrumentation of uh, non-Western particularly Russian statecraft. And um, um, complementary to that, my secondary um, part of uh, my research activities are connected to more of the kinetic end of uh, what traditional propaganda is, is actually the support of paramilitary groups, such as the ones that you've seen been reported, uh, um, the so-called PMC uh, Wagner, but it's not only that, in different parts uh, outside of uh, the borders of the Russian Federation today. Yeah, wonderful. A lot of uh, interesting topics that I think we'll get into a little bit later. I know that you're from Bulgaria originally, right? But you uh, also have some, I just was listening today, and you also have some like Russian heritage and roots. Is uh, that correct? Yes, I'm Hungarian-Bulgarian. Oh, wow. uh, and... Um, 
Uh, my grandmother, my uh, late, uh, my my late grandmother was Russian, so okay. yes, I do have uh-huh. uh, uh, connection to uh, to the culture and to understanding and to the mentality. Yeah. And having grew, uh, having the uh, sort of the, the the great opportunity to 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 grow up uh, in the years of late state mature socialism behind the uh, um, uh, Iron Curtain in different cities such as Budapest and Sofia, gave me the opportunity to experience uh, what we would call you know, scholarly varieties of socialism, but uh, actually, in essence, very different uh, uh, lifestyles and uh, approaches, uh, albeit under one uh, totalitarian system. Uh-huh. And so did you start learning Russian way back when you were, you know, just a, k- a kid? Is that when you started picking up the yes. language? Did you have constant contact with it just through your life in the socialist bloc? Uh, yeah, well, uh, just like everyone else, uh, Russian was mandatory, but I had a benefit, remember, the family connection. So uh, for me, uh, basically at home when I was visiting my grandparents, uh, you know, it was quite naturally that my grandmother would speak to, uh, to, to me uh, in Russian only. Mm-hmm. So uh, I did have that uh, chance uh, due to the fact that um, uh, not only, as I said, uh, everyone was obliged to have a, a, a Russian language as a, you know, a subject that they have to study in school, but also a broader contact with Russian in specific. Sure. Um, and so and then eventually the Iron Curtain, as we all know, fell and, and we had the 1990s. And as somebody who, you know, follows information warfare operations, they obviously took place during the Soviet Union. Pl- plenty of well-documented examples of that. When did these operations kind of uh, resume? I mean, because in the 1990s, they probably fell off a bit, not necessarily stopped, but probably fell off a bit. And then around what time, we obviously have Putin come to power in 2000. When did, I guess, should I say, as far as these information warfare topics, when did you kind of start noticing this and start getting interested in it? And when it had, when did it actually kind of resume? Um, well, pinpointing always, uh, you have to understand that um, each and every sovereign state and uh, has its security appara- uh, apparatus, and part of it is its external intelligence, which is conducting constantly operations. So you cannot really pinpoint uh, when do they stop or so on, but you right. can notice, uh, obviously, a spike of activities. So I would tie it to uh, directly to, to answer your question, I would tie it to uh, the um, ascent of, of, uh, of Mr. Putin in, in, in his political career, and probably uh, around his second term, you would see a resurgent uh, volume and quality of operations tied to different um, intelligence services, which is very interesting because the Russian case uh, is um, also very specific and different from what we know here in the West and in particular in the United States here you do have 17 agencies mm-hmm. and they have other priorities whereas uh, you'll see that uh, specifically now that the media is um, focused so much on, on highly visible and uh, well documented case of be it interference or even what we call active measures uh, which is actually borrowed from the lexicon of uh, the KGB Right, Aktivni Merepriyatia Točno You will see that actually um, um, the Russian uh, intelligence services, namely uh, the re- recently re-renamed, actually acquired back its name, military intelligence, which is GRU, uh, FSB, which uh, is traditionally should be the counterpart of what um, the current FBI here is, and uh, with its law enforcement um, um avenues to, to, to act uh, and SVR uh, which is the foreign intelligence services of the uh, of the Russian Federation sometimes actually they execute operations which overlap and uh, they have sometimes competing priorities which of course leads to some spectacular successes uh, highly visible in the West but also spectacular failures right and I guess you, you one thing you also mentioned um, a little bit earlier is this idea of weaponization of conspiracy theories. Yes. Is that directly tied to these foreign influence operations? Because uh, there is a, d- a distinction, obviously, between um, a, a, an intelligence service of a country trying to influence a situation abroad and things that are going on domestically. 
first of all, let me uh, um, kind of add to uh, to your question. Uh, you should under uh, always understand that um, situ uh, or operations which are uh, currently sponsored by by Kremlin regime, and uh, we have to be always very specific. You know, I hate uh, uh, the idea of people packaging together and talking about Russia in general. You know, we should talk about right. specific political regime. This political regime is actually trying to achieve something which uh, Mark Galeotti, another a very well-noted and respected scholar in, in, in the field of, uh, of understanding uh, what, what is going on within the security apparatus and the politics of Russia, calls mobilization state. Uh, I, I take it from here, mobilization state actually pertains to um, um, having those operations to have dual purpose at home in order to consolidate the support for uh, the regime. That's interesting. Uh, and abroad, uh, and here, of course, we have different variations because you have what we call multiple targets. Uh, so it's not one size fits all. Uh, when you approach uh, different Western or Eastern, Central or Eastern European countries. That means that you have to know and what we call micro-target very well your audience in terms of uh, to understand very well its culture, its language, its, its customs and sure. its religion and its expectations, and then to conduct influence operations. Now, you're asking actually whether, uh, how actually uh, conspiracies are interwoven yeah. with that. How do they get involved? How do they get involved? Very interestingly. Um, usually when you spread disinformation uh, or uh, as uh, you know, that goes the, 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 the old KGB lingo, uh, you have to re, uh, understand very well the fact, and there are uh, certainly very good books in English uh, published by uh, anywhere from Ladislav Bittman to, to Jan Pacepa, uh, of course, to all the Russian um, people that have defected during uh, the Cold War and have provided uh, very valuable inside information about the mentality and uh, actually the logic that goes behind behind it, um, you have to always blend some sort of particle, you know, objective reality, uh, what we call the principle of uh, 2080, you know, 20% of fact and 80% of fabrication. Now, we're now going to those 80% of fabrication uh, when you are trying to spread um, or or develop a a disinformation operation. uh, In order for it to be successful, it has to have all the elements that would touch on very basic psychological traits in order to make it effective. Right. And those are fear, hatred, so on. Right. Uh, now, going from here, uh, and I'll give you a very specific example of today and how it relates to its cousins way back, um, uh, very successful operations, what KGB used to uh, work, um, is to use conspiratorial thinking, which it might exist, we call them originally non-original conspiracies, and try to push it uh, into a narrative transmediated via social networks. And uh, this makes it very close to the idea of transmediated rumors. Uh, so this is how, uh, and something very well known from uh, from standpoint of uh, intelligence studies, but also psychology, sociology, political science. Uh, and just to make it very illustrative for our listeners, um, uh, before the era of internet, one of the most successful operations conducted by the Soviet intelligence uh, in uh, conjecture with, uh, or jointly with other Eastern European um, services, which were highly specialized also in in disinformation operations, such as in this case, Stasi was the so-called Operation Infection. Right. There's the wonderful New York Times uh, piece uh, about it recently, and we'll we'll leave a link for our listeners, certainly. Yes, uh, which in one word actually uh, was, uh, or, you know, this case is absolutely illustrative of how um, conspiratorial thinking becomes weaponized and is highly effective uh, because plainly uh, blames or shifts uh, the, the, or the, the, the blame of back then the unknown idea of what HIV and what was causing it to pinpoint it on, on an experiment gone wrong from uh, Fort uh, Detrick in the United right. States right. and then of course allow it to, to mutate and, uh, and to become um, contextual for any other countries, specifically in the so-called third world, uh, claiming that it was an ethnic weapon or it was specifically designed uh, to 
to to basically harm people. And it came up to a point where people uh, in um, uh, American bases stationed around the world, you know, the locals wouldn't shake hands with them because that's that's what they taught, how it was transmitted. Why? Because back in the day, you lacked the scientific data, actually, and you were seeing only the end result that certain minorities were disproportionately suffering from it. Mm -hmm. So you have created a vast conspiracy which involved um, scientists, or what we would call pseudoscientists, but also collaborators around the world. It was so highly effective at a certain point at governmental level, the American administration had to approach the Soviet leadership to curb it down and stop it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, all, all of what you said, it just it, it makes sense logically, right? Kind of a, a one-off piece of disinformation, uh, you know, it might achieve some very narrow purpose, to, but to be effective in terms of a larger strategy, then of course it has to relate to these much broader conspiratorial uh, systems and ideas and has to fit into a larger web of, of disinformation. Yeah, and uh, of course, just to make it even more clear, uh, every information operation, be it conducted uh, by by the um, Soviet, Russian, or any other intelligence service, in fact, is aiming actually at what we I would refer to as to Holy, Holy Trinity, you know. <laughs> and this Holy Trinity would consist of trying to achieve modification in perception, try to achieve uh, modification in cognition, and ideally uh, try to achieve modification in behavioral effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is how you're doing so. Uh, here, the, the, the course I was conducting it, this university was to introduce our upper uh, undergraduate and grad and certain graduate students that work with me on, on uh, in my research group to a non-Western approach in in um, those disinformation operations and, uh, and and well adopted by uh, and well known by by Soviet and updated by Russian uh, intelligence services based on a scientific theory which is called the the theory of reflexive control uh, which uh, has as in part, you know, philosophy that could be tied, if you will, all the way to the advances of uh, Soviet science uh, and, you know, cognition all the way back to Pavlovian, the Pavlovian conditioning. Right. So uh, so it's not um, it's not something that they came up with uh, one morning. <laughs> right. And, and you all one thing you also mentioned earlier is just this idea about how these information operations, even if they're directed abroad, there's also this idea uh, of yes. blowback. Mm-hmm. And, and in Russia, uh, it's interesting to, to see the ways that I know that you also follow domestic events in, in Russia. It's an interesting the way that you see uh, kind of the results of R- Russian foreign influence campaigns also then entering national discourses in Russia about conspiracy theories. And then, uh, I, you know, one one uh, example that kind of popped to mind recently for me is I think last year there was a Nike commercial you know, a Nike commercial, uh, you know, ad- advertising women's uh, sports uh, wear. And, you know, and it just, and it, uh, long story short, uh, it, it, it just kind of uh, destroyed old gender stereotypes about, about how this is how a woman should be, you know, like singing, pretty, dressed in white, and then look at these gritty women who are sports women. And then, of course, you go on the message board and everyone's saying, oh my, oh my gosh, Nike is uh, partnering with the CIA to uh, send Western values into Russia and to undermine us, blah, blah, blah. And this is just a Nike, a Russian Nike commercial that was done by Nike in Russia nothing to do with anything else. I think that your example is a case in point. Actually, in the samples of collected disinformation that we analyze with with my research uh, associates, we tend to uh, find patterns exactly of this type of mobilization for entirely different purposes. And sometimes, unfortunately, it's tested on um, internally uh, on on, on citizens uh, inside Russia rather than, you know, before being exported. And you just gave an excellent example. Uh, But um, one thing that pops to my mind uh, is precisely creating something that we're, we're um, calling uh, meta-narratives. Uh, mm-hmm. And those meta-narratives are sort of the deeply embedded cognitive schemata or national myths, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, each and every nation has them. Uh, you know, you can argue that for the U.S. that will be the American dream. Sure, uh, Rags to riches stories and so on. Whereas... Um, 
right now what we see uh, under uh, current Kremlin's leadership, you see something that Ilya Yablokov actually pretty well describes as besiege fortress mentality. Yes. Uh, Look, and, I'm itching to read, you know, looking forward to getting my hands on a copy. I would highly recommend. <laughs> and uh, we're looking forward actually to host uh, uh, yeah, Ilya. He'll be coming to see us in a few weeks. In a so. few weeks and talk about it, uh, which will be a wonderful conference and to which a lot of people can actually listen and see how uh, so a lot of the research which has been done in this university in this particular center intersects uh, from very different perspectives, be it security, intelligence, all the way to history, culture, and anthropology. Yeah. Uh, but going back to just to, to, to your specific example, uh, you will see that um, the pattern of omnipotence uh, or, or all the attacks against um, Mother Russia, in this case, which is besieged, and the idea of the besieged fortress being attacked by one spectacular omnipotent uh, ultimate other uh, em, uh, embodied or, or, or um, um, literally portrayed uh, and note very specifically is the CIA that plots mm-hmm. all those dark right. plots, not any other uh, type of agency. Glavny Protivnik uh, used to be the USSR, but in this case you'll see that it's, it's very instrumental to pinpoint all the blames and uh, interestingly enough for all kinds of shortcomings to one specific agency of the USG uh, and it's not for a reason. The reason actually is to try to block all other uh, public diplomacy that, outreaches, which could be people-to-people exchanges right. or, or anything that might even seem benign. Because when you try to vaccinate the minds, uh, this is what uh, sort of the cognitive attacks actually achieve. Those are attacks on what um, Kahneman calls system one thinking. Uh, you know, people, when, when, when you work with their primal emotions in fear, will tend to listen less afterwards, even if you bring them the most rational arguments that, uh, you know, one has nothing to do with others. Yeah. Or in this case, you know, your Nike commercial can definitely, uh, you know, be serving, you know, yeah. uh, uh, you know, the idea of improving sales, but not anything and, else beyond that. And you said something really interesting, which is that, right, I, I'm fascinated by this idea that this meta narrative, one of its effects is that it delegitimizes all of this honest citizen dis- diplomacy and Absolutely. all kinds of other cultural connections and economic. It just it just it just so devalues and just says this is this is all fake because th- there's actually some secret narrative native narrative going on here. And I think and it's startlingly effective because another thing that I've seen is just a compilation of of all the things the CIA has been <laughs> has been playing for. Right. So they 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 uh, they like. Came up with Coca Cola and spread it to Russia. They did all, you know, the list goes on. <laughs> Don't and on. forget the internet. The, inter- uh, the internet, exactly. And so um, it, it, it is kind of unfortunate to, when I, you know, when I was in Russia to, to, to kind of see that. And I did confront that a little bit. And and it, then it gets funny because you don't know who, especially if it's online, you don't know who's joking. And then, of course, people <laughs> joke about this thing too. But then some people are, are sincere. Uh, absolutely. And uh, this is why I believe that um, uh, our research here is so important uh, because on one side, is very important for the scholarly community, uh, community but also for pr- practitioners and even students that travel to understand uh, some of the intricacies that we're talking about and make it in uh, explain it in popular popular language and disseminate disseminate that lang- uh, that uh, that knowledge. And on the other hand, um, it is always uh, sort of inter- uh, you know always fascinating for me to uh, have all those real life examples that people like you that travel uh, to see how they fit into a broader picture and. Uh, unfortunately, again, um, some of those um, policies, some of those actions, even the language, as Galeotti uh, rightfully uh, points out, has uh, becoming more militarized or even adopts the, the, the sort of the jargon of the intelligence services in Russia itself. And I think uh, the climate, uh, the social climate uh, suffers from that immensely. Absolutely. And what this got me thinking about is about how now Russia, uh, I, again, we're trying not to use Russia in such general terms. I think that's the correct rule. I think I heard somewhere that like um, some, there's a Russia analyst who has the, like the, the saying that you can never say Russia does or thinks or says, you need to be more specific about who that, what that institution is. And I think that's a good rule uh, uh, to, to follow. But I, I know that, well, in, 
in Russia, there's this guy, Yevgeny Prigorzhin, who's been at the center of a lot of issues, whether we go from the Wagner stuff or even to the recent interference in the U.S.'s uh, election through the, the troll factory. But what, what, something that really fascinated me is when uh, it was some time already after the, the 2016 election interference story broke is when kind of when Putin for the first time commented on it and he said, oh, yeah, he's that's our Soros. <laughs> and and so what's, what's going on here? It's t- it's it's for the domestic well, for domestic and international audiences, it's now tying Russia's activities and saying, oh, no, it's the same as something the West has been doing. And it's operating on this old conspiracy theory about how George Soros is, again, the mm-hmm. CIA agent who was supposed to bring down Russia with and the he's Internet. he's Jewish as well, right? And he's Jewish. And so anti-Semitism and all these other um, uh uh, conspiracies, um, and so were, were you similarly fascinated by the way that now Russian disinformation is is taking and operating under you know saying oh we're taking this model that they p- feel that they've been victimized by? Um, uh, yes, actually, in fact, uh, now that I'm currently researching and preparing for for in hopefully a book um, which will be dedicated to um, the development of the model of roughly because the Russian uh, uh, federal Federation's uh, penal code currently does not allow um, private military companies to operate. Right. Uh, but when I researched that material, uh, and I'll tell you how that ties in, as you rightly pointed out, um, without making out a boogeyman out of uh, Prigozhin who's on the sanction list, but this is the very same person who has been financially backing all kinds of what I would call foreign policy and armed adventurism of the Russian Federation, um, and it has been doing it very intensely in the current years. Uh, so on one side, uh, you know, uh, you have the Troll Factory and uh, you can read actually a pretty good um, description, I think, in the Mueller's report about what this thing is all about. Uh, but in the same time, um, the so-called, uh, you know, you want to call them contractors, you want to call them uh, mercenaries, I prefer mercenaries, which are being yeah. curated by the Russian military intelligence because they train on in Malokino and Krasnodarsky Krai uh-huh. on their base and they have been transported. Uh, there is this logical progression of what is really is going on. You know, ex-army Afghan vets uh, taking care uh, and um, you know carefully. It's, it's much more complicated about recruitment of these people. But think of those experiences they had in the ex-Yugo wars, which they drew a lot of lessons from. Uh, ultimately, uh, the polite green man and their uh, associates in Crimea and occupied eastern Ukraine, and then the ultimate uh, well, testing ground what I would call is Syria. So this is, uh, think about the person that has been close in this, so he's from St. Petersburg. Um, it, for, for people that are interested to understand a little bit about um, the political um, system that, that thicks between something they think is very, very monolithic, where in fact it is not, and I would agree with Marlene Laruel here that we're dealing uh, with Kremlin, which has absolutely uh, sort of um, non-homogeneous um, sort of fractions which are gaining or, or, or fighting for an upper mm-hmm. hand. You have the Siloviki on one side, right. you do have... Um, uh, the, what we will call roughly the liberals, and then you have the orthodox fraction, you know, tied to religious ideas yeah. and uh, imperial legacy. But the Sporsky Club is related to that. Yes, absolutely. A number of other organizations, which I think uh, further, uh, um, uh, you know, deserve further attention. Actually, the nexus of, of how these people interact right. and what's uh, what what is the place of the church there. But going back to Prigozhin, uh, the interesting part of it is that um, he is simply exemplifies. Uh, a model into which um, it's it's very simple. You know, it ties to something which is uh, very well known, I think, or at least instinctively felt by by the citizens of the Russian Federation. Tied to corruption, I think uh, Navalny is talking about a lot about that, and that's why it hurts so much, especially people that you know calling him on a duel and a number of other things and putting public threats threats against him because the money in order to run those operations, you know, from intelligence point of view, Prigozhin's idea 
ideal because you have uh, the plausible deniability. You do not have to take an, you know accountability for all those actions of those people anywhere from Libya to Central African Republic mm-hmm. to Libya to Sudan. But on the other side, or the trolls, you know, which didn't, yes, you know, he's they, a pr- private patriotic citizen. Pri- uh, remember, things, yeah. you know, it just reminded me of the the the, 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 the patriotic hackers. It's very very similar. similar yeah. But going back, it's something very important. He be, he's a part of elaborate machinery, um, you know, up in the elites, and to which he has been asked favors uh, to do, which are actually extensions of uh, foreign state policy initiatives, yeah. statecraft. In return, it's very simple. He wins procurements, and uh, this particular guy is, or this particular person, to be respectful, um, is actually uh, winning huge procurements. Uh, uh, specifically to cater Russian armed forces. Now, I'm not sure what the quality of the food is, just by judging by the comments. I don't think yeah. you know service service people are, are are happy, but you can always hide you know certain you know funds for other activities. Absolutely. But it feeds up into this what Ledenova calls the informal sort of networking between the elites to stay sure. up on top. So yeah. you cannot refuse. That's an offer that you cannot refuse. Yeah, and it, I think it it's kind of become doubly uncomfortable in Russia because now his catering service is also under attack by Navalny for its uh, contracts with the Moscow region uh, school schools yeah, and kindergartens and the the poor quality of the of the products so now but, this has been very uncomfortably been he's well involved in Russian domestic politics and well I think the trolls will be busy because I think the mothers are mothers everywhere around the world so they'll be writing online about yeah. the quality of foods they're kidding their their kids are receiving so uh, you know I you know we'll see probably some interesting dynamic there but I, I do uh, want to get back to uh, the the Wagner Chipaka Wagner organization and there was this very infamous infamous story that we've read about in Syria about how where it was something like and a lot of conflicting reports I think there was you know stories in the American press but then there was all kinds of information about it coming out um, from within Russia and so as far as I understand it and kind of I want to hear your thoughts on how you think everything actually went down but it was something like 200 mercenaries were kind of Working with the the Syrians, the government forces, Assad's forces, and they they were going to seize some piece of infrastructure. It was like a oil pipeline refining station or something like that. And when they started their attack, they were attacked by like American attack helicopters. And I think the right afterwards, Maria Zakharova, one of the foreign uh, foreign ministry spokeswoman, she came out and said that there was you know it was like something like tw- you know twenty or 30, 40 people died. But then immediately in Russia, there was the reports of there's a hospital filled with two hundred people and so on and so on. Um, I was just wondering, do you have any perception of kind of wh- what actually happened at that event and how that story really did play out? Well, first of all, um, we should give a praise here uh, to begin with uh, to the very brave investigative journalists in Russia. Yeah. I think uh, not enough praise has been given and credit to some very, very brave That's people a wonderful that, point. Yeah. Uh, that have actually first exposed certain things that uh, afterwards the Western press, quote unquote, discovers or rediscovers. These people mm-hmm. actually risk a lot. And uh, hats off. Shapaba, uh, I, I think that we them a lot, you know, and uh, not only uh, when they were reporting about the Troll Factory, but similarly about Cheveka, Chasna Vienna Campania, again, um, Kavit, uh, this is just an approximation, um, uh, because you will see that most of those companies that we're talking about, it's not only Wagner, there are different other formations, uh, usually tend to be registered um, for, for legal purposes, either through shell companies or through other vehicles in different countries outside of uh, the Russian Federation to operate. Now, what you are addressing to, well, that will be, for instance, you know, the case for seven services in Central African Republic and so on, where um, the official count of the personnel, whatever Maria Zaharova says, yes, of course, there are 150 uh, uh, what we call Wagner boys, but five of those actually belong officially to the armed forces. And yes, it's under UN auspices and so on. But the rest of them are, quote unquote, civilian instructors. Mm-hmm. Now, you should look closely at those. Going back to uh, what you raised, the point which I believe to be one of the most significant and underlooked, and uh, hence our entry, 
interesting now mm-hmm. to <laughs> working on a you know on, on a book about that. But um, incidents pertaining to direct um, confrontation, yeah. unfortunately, with um, you know, with uh, casualties between what used to be the hyperpowers uh, now near peer competitors, uh, which has chilling consequence and I'll try to explain why it has in my uh, hum- humble opinion my perspective on on, on what um, this spells out for the future so uh, obviously private uh, or mercenarism in general just as you can look at the wonderful works of uh, Sean McFate and a number of other scores of books uh, that have been written uh, on the history of uh, privatization of, of violence and so on first of all mercenaries have been uh, not uh, have been a norm in medieval um, Europe rather than some sort of a peculiarity. Uh, and it ties sure. down to the establishment of nation states and so on. Uh, so in this in, in this regard, Russians are not doing something you know evil or uh, original or so on or, or, or mystical. Right. Uh, what they're trying to do is actually they're copying a model that is developed in the West mainly sure. <laughs> and adapting it for yeah. their own purposes uh, with their own resources the way they see it fit. Right now, um, the the tricky thing is, and I I don't want to totally interrupt you, but if I understand correctly, currently on the books there is a law against mer- like mercenary. It is in right. a, within the penal code, I believe. It's too you know I'm just right now you caught me out there, but the article of the Russian penal code heavily penalizes that. Yeah. And not so only how are they kind of squaring the circle? Exactly. I'm sure that's what you know a lot about. Uh, interestingly enough, if you look at the predecessor of, uh, because uh, Wagner actually is the call sign uh, of Cor- uh, Colonel uh, Dmitry Utkin, uh, who used to participate in a previous adventure, if you will, with privatized force, which is called Slavon- Slavonic Corps. Uh, and that was a company, I believe, registered in Hong Kong, which was uh, brought about and had only one single battle on the Syrian battlefield. The idea was to help out pro-Assad forces. Uh, of course, this ended up uh, actually in a disaster uh, for uh, those uh, Russian contractors, and they were brought immediately home. Guess what happened to them? FSB, in this uh, case, acted rather swiftly according to Russian penal code, uh, which did not apply, obviously, to uh, Colonel Utkin, uh, who was able to uh, actually reassemble, uh, and uh, again, with the help of those powerful uh, oligarchs, if you will, I, again, it's a cliche, but very powerful, rich individuals which gravitate within the top echelon of um, current administration around Mr. Putin. Uh, and obviously was the idea, and here is a huge debate, you know, how we should look at them, whether classical PMCs in Western sense or just simply extension of the military intelligence right, services right. of the Russian that, Federation. That, that is the fascinating It is question, what we yeah. call the gray zone because they operate a gray zone in the sense that it's quasi-legal and you're not sure where the state ends and where the private, where the private begins and vice right. versa. Now, going back to this very significant incident, which which I think I cannot overstate how important it is. Um, uh, when this batch of people, you know, which had spectacular successes in the overtake of Palmyra, for instance, would be uh, an example of that. Uh, and they were very, because they're obviously some of them are very well prepared, you know, Brave, tactically. seasoned experience. So I would yeah. say, yes, they were very seasoned experiences. I, I remember I, I pointed out at least three other theaters where they were operating. So they're right. battle-hardened people. Uh, personnel, which is um, having its own pursuit. But um, yes, they were um, attempting an operation. uh, And in Syria, as it is today, you, know, you should understand uh, very clearly that international presence is so dense that the coordination and and maintenance of, of technical uh, sort of um, contact in between the participants on the ground is crucial in order to avoid a really heavy um, collision. So, I mean, you have presence of, of, of uh, proxies and, and their sponsors and, and, it's, and it's frankly it's dangerous. Any mistake has a very uh, high mm-hmm. cost attached mm-hmm. to it. So, uh, yes, near Deir Erzor, uh, their idea to recapture an installation uh, and doing so uh, 
uh, obviously without coordination, most likely uh, even with the regular uh, Russian forces on the ground, has brought um, you know this this contact uh, with with little outcome, which the, obviously uh, some brave um, uh, also uh, what I call disinformation uh, battling warriors from Ukraine and other international. Um, scholars and researchers were trying to explain that Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Zaharova you know, is telling us, uh, telling us only partially the truth. Actually, there is a very interesting hashtag at that time that appeared, and I would say in Russian ich tam net, uh, <laughs> because they were, uh, you know, uh, despite the fact that uh, unfortunately here, there is no irony here, absolutely, don't get me wrong, when people were being transported in coffins back, uh, back to, to Russia and being buried quietly uh, some of their families legitimately were asking uh, about uh, what the state or should there be an acknowledgement and so on. Uh, so hence the publicity. And then uh, here is the, again, uh, one more time, let me uh, give the praise to the brave Russian reporters, which went to look after this story, this nexus, this experiment, if you will, uh, which actually gained traction because uh, you can see that um, um, in the experimentation of Mr. Prigozhin currently just in uh, a couple of weeks ago, we knew that for, for a while, but uh, you can spot his guys, not the, necessarily the security personnel, but his politechnology, mm -hmm. uh, which are partially what I call uh, the digital mercenaries of disinformation, which is this is other parts. You should understand that those operations usually go hand in hand sure. uh, and in concert. Uh, guess where? They just uh, came back from a tour from Madagascar. Mm -hmm. So if you think that this is a local phenomenon just contained to Syria, I would say think twice. Right. Um, so it seems with, with regard to the Siri example, they the decision that was made in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was, okay, we can't hide the fact that something happened. But what we can do, we tried. Is, yeah, but what we can do is say yes, yes. There was this thing, and some people died. But the numbers you're seeing are just are blown way out of proportion, and there's Correct. not nearly that many. Um, that's fascinating. Um, and so I do know that there was. Oh, I think there's one guy in the Duma um, who is really pushing for these mercenary companies to get uh, legalized. My question for you is, kind of, who is exerting that? pressure to legalize and will it happen and what's the what's the what's the benefit of legalizing these mercenary organizations under Russian law what does that really do for them um, you were pointing out to actually a very uh, important and structural question. Actually, it is not the first. I, I'm, I'm aware of at least two attempts to uh, push modified um, bills uh, to legalize um, the private military companies because uh, security. the law allows for security companies to operate. And there were some important amendments within, uh, I believe, of last year, uh, within the, 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 the Russian uh, legal framework, which allowed Russians to be abroad uh, in, in, in relations to battling uh, global terrorism and so on, which is a very convenient way also. I'm, I'm not saying, I'm just saying that it, it could be used uh, and probably is used by some of those op operators to um, to exert functions. Um, when we talk about PMCs, you have to understand, you know, that uh, usually contractors in general, uh, West and East, probably the majority of them uh, uh, exercise operations which are purely defensive. Usually they guard installations and so on. And uh, usually it's for private entities. Um, when we talk about, however, the ones that fascinate probably the most, as you were mentioning, the, the incident near the Azor, are the so-called uh, tip of the spear operations, uh, which is something entirely different. It's one thing to instruct and teach the locals that's entirely different to you know fight and direct their battles. Right. Um, now, going back to um, what is the dynamics, what it, there are at least two streams of thoughts and at least one so, group of stakeholders which is, does not feel very comfortable with legalizing uh, private military um, companies uh, in, uh, in, in the Russian Federation. One of them, of course, obviously, uh, you know, there is an opposition to, to uh, legalize this type of uh, force because the monopoly of, especially under this regime of force and uh, creating a sort of something that would be independent uh, of the curation of the Siloviki presents a danger, uh, frankly. And people want to have a control. On the other hand, uh, it probably 
probably, uh, especially people that are pushing forward, they want to basically legitimize something that already is happening in reality. So there is a, a, a big argument, and at least twice, actually, two different time, uh, types of, of bills have been presented. But to my understanding, specifically the Sulevic fraction in its all facets, uh, does not want to um, legalize them because uh, it will give certain degree of autonomy of those operators uh, outside. And remember, as just as in the case in Slavonic, Slavonic Corps, I would say that, um, of course, the regime wants to own the victories and kind of uh, even deniably saying that, oh, yeah, Patriot ha- hackers, well, you know, we have the best in the world. And, uh, you know, they just patriotically do. Here you have the same thing, but disown the tragedies. So, uh, no, these are not guys. So plausible deniability. Yeah, and it's it's the, the uniformed service members missing out on kind of, it's I mean, operations that they otherwise could have maybe gotten involved in. Um, and so, you, yeah, it makes sense why the Sylvie key would kind of be opposed to it. I think to finish, uh, I'd like to come to Ukraine. Uh, you and I just uh, authored an article about it that we're going to try to get published and what's going on in this Ukrainian election. But I think um, for a second, I'd like to think of it, about it from Russia's standpoint. Um, do we have any evidence that kind of Russia is is uh, involved in covert action with regard to this Ukrainian election or is it involved in some sort of um, d- disinformation campaign? Oh, yeah. So you're, you're, you're asking the heaviest question of them all <laughs> is, is what it is. Um, uh, it will be hardly um, ha- ha- already made a point that I'm one of these people that um, would hate to use cliches and see Russia under uh, under the bed or, 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 you know, or, or, or go into the extreme of Absolutely. Uh, attributing everything to uh, some sort of a grand master plan that is ongoing and so one because right. there is none such right uh and uh, i think that that could be applied well right. for we, our we, good for southeastern europe as, as Sirkov well. said i don't think we want to they haven't gotten in our heads <laughs> we, should, we definitely shouldn't act that uh, way. yeah well uh that's something you know of a different podcast you yeah. have to be analyzed you know probably separately mr Strukov's article and uh, his pseudo intellectual sort of pushes but um going back to ukraine because it's a key question let's start for with the fact that um i mean it's a country that is uh you know uh, the aggression is is real. Um, you know, the situation is, is as we all know uh, is absolutely not easy and is very complex. I'll be highly surprised if. Um Specifically, Mr. Srukov and uh, the people that have been attributed within the administration, uh, sort of the responsibility to monitor what is going on in the so-called Novorossiya. Uh, so. Do we see the signs and levels of intensity of uh, what we know from prior uh, experience? Probably not in the same form uh, or way. Uh, and uh, we should we should applaud the Ukrainians for trying their absolutely best, given the uh, the rampant levels of cynicism, disengagement, and then all the negative factors, negative social dynamics. To have uh, and to hold the uh, uh, free and fair elections, uh, despite all the divisions and cleavages they have, mm-hmm. uh, do are we sure that uh, there weren't number of uh, campaigns or smaller um, attempts? I'm pretty sure that uh, uh, SBU uh, has been pretty adequately uh, reporting mm-hmm. uh, about Russian uh, attempts uh, to meddle into different aspects, uh, and of course, um, uh, I've seen also reports such as you know the current foreign uh, policy article about the leading candidate and the uh, possibility that he might be um, actually um, influenced uh, directly or indirectly uh, in steering policies within uh, the possibilities frankly uh, what is very concerning to me is that at least from what we understand uh, with candidates uh, such as the leading one will see his performance because we can't judge he doesn't have a track Mm -hmm. record in in, in policy making Uh, for them uh, it's easy kind of to to go up you know and flare up but uh, in terms of uh, delivering uh, actual results especially for a country which had to go such traumatic experience when making its choices for its future generations uh, that would be might be problematic so we are highly uh, we definitely 
definitely uh, are going towards a period of uncertainty, uh, even if the candidate is attempting to be a bridge between uh, Russia and the West, we have to understand to what expense, because uh, a lot of uh, effort and Ukrainian blood has been spilled. Right, right. And we're doing this social media monitoring, which I know you've helped us out a lot with. In fact, you you know really helped us do the framework. Uh, when one of the kind of one of the things we're finding is that uh, the Ukrainian youth are really tired of being a buffer state, and they don't think it's. I mean, if as long as Ukraine is a buffer state, that these the, the kind of issues Ukraine is confronting are, are really going to continue. And so, one of the really interesting things that we found is that there is this extremely distinct and strong, and and for me, it was actually kind of unexpected orientation towards the West as far as what. Uh, the youth want because I, I I should remind people that uh, you know openly pro Russian candidates got well over two million votes in the election and, and you know in, in Ukraine you'll find plenty of kind of you know pro Putin uh, Ukrainians and so but we we did we have not found that uh, at all amongst the youth so I think it'll be really interesting to see what that means and kind of in a longer term geopolitical perspective for Ukraine I would uh, agree with you and I, I would like to finish a little bit on a positive note uh, and a positive note uh, despite the, all the the dangers because we we understand a lot of the people that this time got engaged probably are not necessarily rationally informed of what mm-hmm. uh, the authorities of a president what he can do and what he cannot achieve you know versus let's say the prime minister and what is the institutional framework. Um, but the positive, the, the, the one very positive um, fact that you have mentioned is that the group uh, that you belong to that has been monitoring uh, the youth engagement and the use of social media and, uh, and the, uh, basically the attitudes of young U- Ukrainians from very different parts of the country uh, to their political process and what that means for Ukraine's future. Um, one thing that stands out very importantly to me is that a very small fraction from uh, what you and your colleagues uh, while doing those surveys uh, understood and then realized and started analyzing as a data is that a very small fraction of Ukrainian young people actually see the Russian autocratic model as the one to follow. Uh, It means that, um, you know, if we have to translate it to uh, purely sort of uh, political science, if you will, in political science terms, it means that you do have actually quite diminished soft power of Russia, which has to rely on other instruments, which kind of gives me back, you know, to the initial uh, sort of, you know, to the full circle of where we started. And that's why it's important to look at their influence operations within the uh, realm of intelligence. Yeah. Well, Kirill, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, one thing we always kind of like to do just to wrap up is um, ask if you have any recommendations as far as kind of a book or a movie or an article or something that you uh, read or saw recently that that you really thought was interesting or really liked that you would l- like to share. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I uh, One more time, um, I would recommend to look at the, 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 the book of Ilya yeah, Yablokov, okay, yeah. uh, Fortress Russia, because uh, I think that it's one of the best accounts uh, currently out there. Uh, and I think it will be followed soon by others, uh, which follow up the topic and develop it uh, from uh, from the perspective of, uh, of the West. Uh, but it is uh, very fascinating because actually puts conspiracy theories within the specter of policymaking and any other influence, influences that are, are uh, very important within streams of Russian culture and understanding contemporary uh, Russia. I, I know you, I think you might have had an advanced copy. The book is out? Yeah. Yes. It's, okay, good. I have an advanced copy for right. it. Awesome. <laughs> That's the privilege of being on the faculty, right? Yes, yes, yes. Well, Kirill, thank you so much for coming on. I really hope that we'll have you back on again because there's still so much that we could be talking thank about. Thank you, with and- pleasure. The views, opinions, and ideas expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Thank you for listening to the Slavic Connection. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information and to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. As always, we invite listener feedback, so please send us your comments. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.